questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. For over 20 years, Godis Notgras was an independent contractor specializing in sensitive covert assignments, as well as bodyguard work. In 1994, he was given the task to blow up the Alfred P. Mora building in Oklahoma City. This job came from an ex-U.S. military man who told him he worked covertly for the CIA. He refused on moral grounds. His strong opposition to attacking U.S. citizens on our own soil changed his status from a CIA asset into liability, a private independent contractor who knew too much. Greetings, I'm your host, Mel Fabregas. And if you're new to the Veritas family, welcome home. To listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, just click on the subscribe button. And don't forget to visit the Veritas store for MMS, hemp oil, pure organic sulfur, and much more. And if you want to get in touch with me, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. Now from his own words, this is the true story of my job offer in October 1994 to bomb the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City six months before it happened for $1 million in cash. As an independent contractor and bodyguard who worked with, among other CIA assets and agents, I refused his job on patriotic grounds. In May 1999, during ATF DEA Operation Stingray, I told undercover ATF agents about CIA domestic black ops who cover up massive high-level U.S. government corruption. But I was planted with false evidence by these ATF agents who were awarded the nation's top cop award by Vice President Al Gore. These high-level truths show a quiet shadow government takeover of America's justice system by CIA-controlled judges and the bankers' new world order. These are the truths our government doesn't want you to know about the Oklahoma City cover-up. After 20 years of silence, this false flag operation, CIA mind control, and more are revealed. His book is titled Choosing the Light, Dark Secrets of the Oklahoma City Bombing. And there are links on our website. Cody Snuckress joins us today. Cody, welcome to Veritas. How are you? Oh, thanks, Mel. I'm great. It's a real pleasure and honor to be with you. Likewise, likewise. 1995. It's been, what, 24 years since that event? Yep, this year's be it'd be 24 years. Let's start from the beginning. This is going to be a hard, hard interview to conduct just because the information that you'll be sharing with us tonight is very difficult to grasp. For a lot of people who are still probably asleep, Cody, a lot of people think that the government has our best intentions in mind. Let's give a, a bit of a background of who you are. Let's start from the very beginning. Yeah, um, yeah, we'll go through a, a, a timeline, uh, and then we'll go through uh, stuff about the Oklahoma City bomb, and then we can ask questions and stuff. But this timeline, it'll take me about 10 minutes or so. Uh, we always start. Uh, any interviews we do, uh, we quote the 1982 Intelligence Identities Protection Act. That's the IIPA, U.S. Code uh, Title 50, Sections 421, 426. 
and it states the disclosure of a U.S. government operative's identity is illegal only if it's done intentionally and with knowledge that the government is still actively maintaining a cover for such operative. And we do this, Mel, because some of the people we're going to be talking about are, um, uh, some of them are deceased, we can use their names. Uh, some of them may be uh, operational, so we cannot use their names. But uh, we do this in regards to, uh, some of your listeners may know of CIA case officer John Kiriaku. Uh, back in January 2013, he was sentenced um, to about 30 months in federal prison here for violation of this act. He was charged with five counts of espionage. The whole case was made up. He was a whistleblower for the CIA's RDI program. That was a rendition, detention, and interrogation program down at, at Gitmo and, and other places. But um, we always quote that act. Uh, and so, yeah, my story basically begins way back in 1974. I graduated from high school. I'd taken the SAT test. That's the Scholastic Aptitude Test here in the U.S. for college entrance. I scored in the top 1% in the physics section of that test. And so later in 1975, uh, in the physics department at East Texas State University uh, here in the U.S., uh, the CIA came to recruit me. And um, later on, I went, I'm just going to fast forward through time. I I graduated in... uh, By the way, take take all the time you need. Okay. Yeah, I'm just going to go through a basic timeline and then we'll, we'll get into specifics later. But then uh, I graduated with a double Bachelor of Science degrees in both mathematics and physics. I went on to work on my Master of Science degree in physics. Uh, and during that time, uh, I got to fly the space shuttle simulator down at NASA on a, a physics field trip down there. And so uh, after graduate school, I worked at Chevron Geosciences there in Houston, Texas, and later moved to Amoco Production Company as a petroleum and research geophysicists. Now, these were my civilian fronts. Um, you know, uh, it's like a knock, you know, non-official cover. Uh, an official cover would be something like a liaison to the State Department or a photojournalist for, for Time Magazine or whatever. But these, this was a, a non-government uh, uh, situation um, with a non-government cover. So that was my cover there. And... Um, from 82 through 85, um, I, that was in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where I was uh, working for Amoco Production Company as a front. Um, we were involved in the operations over in Arkansas. Uh, Bill and Hillary Clinton, Bill was governor there, and um, the CIA was running multiply nested operations there to um, uh, assist the uh, Nicaraguan freedom fighters the Contras against the Sandinistas run by uh, Daniel Ortega down there. In February of 84, Congress had passed the Bolin Amendment, and uh, that was an amendment uh, designed to keep troops out, uh, you know, not on the ground down there. And Ronald Reagan, the president, didn't like that, so he covertly ordered CIA director to run these ops. Centaur Rose, Jade Bridge, and Screwworm, we can talk about all those later on. Um, And so you fast forward through all that, and... um, I got the job to bodyguard uh, Staff Sergeant Barry Sadler uh, down in Guatemala City. He had previously been with the Special Forces in Vietnam. And uh, during that time, some of your older listeners, Mel, they might re- uh, remember him. In 1965, he wrote The Battle of the Green Beret, which went up to the number one hit single here in the U.S. Uh, right before the Vietnam War was escalated. 
But I went to bodyguard him. That whole story's in there. The truth of what happened there has never been told. He was shot on September 8, uh, 1988, down there by a CIA assassin. So anyway, you fast forward through that time. You go through the Waco thing. Uh, you know, the, the uh, Ruby Ridge uh, standoff happened up in Idaho with Randy Weaver and Vicki Weaver where she was shot. Some of the same ATF agents there would show up later at the Branch Davidian compound in Waco. That was February 28th and 93. And we can tell the story about that. We have a story in this book that's never been told in public either. Um, so you fast forward through all this time. Uh, we go up into uh, September 91. I was involved in Project Slammer. That's a, another um, CIA operation uh, that had begun back in 84 and 85. It was a 10-year study with NSA, DIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency, uh, Navy and Army Air Force Intelligence and so forth. We can talk about that more in detail. I died in that operation uh, twice. They had to shock me back, and I survived. And so fast forward into uh, October 94. That's when uh, Harold Leonard approached me with a job offer to buy the Murrah building. We can talk about that more in detail. And so... um, after that operation, uh, the murder building went up in April 19th of 95. Uh, Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols got pinned as the, the patches for that op. We can talk more about that, too. But so anyway, after all of this, uh, it, was, it was later on in 1999. Um, DEA ATF Operation Stingray had begun in Colorado Springs, Colorado, and that's where I met ATF agent Blake Butler, who would later be given the nation's top cop award. And one day when we were there, it was uh, April 20th of 1999 is when the Columbine high school shooting occurred up here in Littleton, Colorado. Now, Mel, that was the largest high school shooting at the time ever in the U.S. And so two days later, I was at ATF agent's uh, undercover residence there for the ATF DEA. And we began talking. President Bill Clinton was there with Janet Reno, uh, the United States Attorney General at the time. And they were talking about the Columbine shooting and so forth. And so we started talking, and um, we were all alone there. And I didn't know we were under four-millimeter little hidden cameras. So I began talking there about some of the CI stuff I'd been in and the job to bomb the Maruba and so forth. Well, the ATF turned those tapes over to CIA, and the CIA disappeared them because everything on it was true. I talked about the pedophile rings in Arkansas, the aforementioned Operation Centaur Rose, and so forth, the money laundering, the pedophile rings, the drug rings, everything down there. We can talk about all that later. Uh, But anyway, fast-forwarding through here, uh, five months later, ATF agent Blake Butler planted me with false evidence, uh, and the CIA disappeared the tapes, and it was their way of shutting me up. And so they threw me in uh, in front of Judge Edward Nottingham in the Tenth Circuit District Court in Denver, Colorado. They uh, committed perjury to the grand jury um, and lied. And we can talk about the planted evidence, all that stuff later if we got time. But this is a big story. And so Judge Edward Nottingham, we would find out, was nominated to his position as a, a chief judge there here in Colorado by none other than George Bush Sr., who was uh, Director of Central Intelligence, the DCI, back in the 70s when they came to recruit me. And so um, Judge Nottingham was like a front for the CIA. His 
his job was to pretend to be a federal judge, but what he really did was steer cases, okay, and control cases that were national security insensitive. And they used what they call the DOJ, Department of Justice, software. Um, it was called the Promise software. Promise, yeah, avert. Yep, and they steered cases like uh, uh, Q West case with Joe Naccio, the Q West executive who wouldn't play along with the NSA uh, spying on Americans that Bush had ordered after the uh, 9-11 attacks and so forth. And so there were several people who had CI stuff, and we were all thrown in front of Judge Nottingham. Well, um, they put me in solitary confinement uh, close to Timothy McVeigh, um, and... The whole the whole series of of stuff is documented in this book. It's a seven hundred page book. has a huge appendix. It has three hundred twos from the FBI and DEA and ATF. It has activity log reports, court documents in the appendix, so forth. All right. So fast forward through this time, uh, McVeigh was uh, sent to be executed. Um, I believe they, yeah, that was June the 11th of 2001 when he, they took him to Terre Haute, Indiana. And um, I got to talk to the attorney who witnessed the execution there at Terre Haute. He held McVeigh's mother's hand. Nathan Chambers was his name. We talk about all that in detail later. Uh, so they kept me in there for about four and a half years. I never had a motions hearing. I was denied bond. I had a perfect record, not one traffic ticket. I had no drugs, no violence. Um, they got me on these planted evidence uh, with firearms charges I can tell you about. And so I, I know I'm going real fast. I'm just trying to cover a lot of t- uh, stuff in a short time. Well, on July 24th of 2003, um, Judge Nottingham ordered a final motions hearing for me. I'd went four and a half years and never even had a motions hearing. Um, the, the court reporters were kicked out of many of my the hearings. Uh, U.S. Marshals told to stand outside. They played the tapes, uh, these tapes that were made uh, about me talking about the Oklahoma City bombing and, and the cover-ups and the pedophile rings and, and the cocaine and all the drugs in uh, the aforementioned Operation Centaur Rose in Arkansas with the Clintons. And so um, all of this was going on, and we had hired a tape expert named William Valentine. He had previously worked for the CIA as a as a uh, electronics expert, his job was to bug and debug the White House. Um, he had coffee with preceding presidents Reagan, Bush, and Clinton. And Valentine uh, looked at all the tapes. He looked at all the stuff, and we had 100% evidence, Mel, that the uh, ATF, the DEA, the CIA had doctored tapes, planted evidence. They were all involved in a conspiracy to uh, plant evidence, obstruct justice, lie to the grand jury, and so forth. So we were going to get all this stuff into the court. And Valentine told me, he said, you know, you're dealing with these people that were at Waco. They were at Ruby Ridge, Idaho. They were working at the Murrah building on the day it was bombed and then called in sick, of course. Um, So he said, they're not going to ever let you get this stuff into court. They're all going to go to prison. And this stuff's going to be on the front page of every newspaper in the U.S., be on the national news, everything. And so the hearing was scheduled for July 24th. Well, on July the 7th, okay, just about two weeks before 
we were going to get all this stuff in and take down the ATF, the DEA, all of it. Um, I was cleaning my windshield at a Walmart parking lot on 8th Street in Colorado Springs, Colorado. My wife was in there shopping. I was leaning across the hood, cleaning the windshield. I never saw it. I never heard it. Uh, I heard the wheels uh, squealing and a motor racing. And uh, someone came in the parking lot right in front of me and totaled my LTD Crown Victoria out from under me. Uh, knocked it back about six to eight feet. It was the motor was off. It was in park um, and knocked me up and back into another car. And I hit on the roof of that car and rolled over the hood. And then I bounced off the fender of another car adjacent to it and then hit a concrete light pole. And it nearly killed me, but I survived and was in the hospital for a while. And then I went to an outpatient physical therapy uh, unit. And then when I was walking out from this outpatient unit with a cane, um, I had another car in the parking lot. And I was walking to the car real slow. And on the street adjacent to the parking lot was a Colorado Springs police cruiser sitting there with a the motor running. And when I got to my car, they floored the motor. They jumped the curb, and sparks were flying everywhere. And this motor, it was coming right at me. And I thought they were going to crush me between uh, the two cars. And at the last minute, they swerved this police cruiser sideways. It was about four feet away from me, threw rocks all over me. And in the car was the nation's top cop, ATF agent Blake Butler. He's the one that planted me with evidence and turn the, the tapes about the CIA and the murder building over to the uh, CIA. And he shook his finger at me. He was dressed in a Colorado Springs police uniform, Mel. And he shook his finger at me. And then he drove off. And I was pretty shook up. And I, I got my car, and I drove back up the mountain pass, coming to my uh, cabin up here in the Colorado mountains. And I pulled over and, and, and threw up. I was really upset. And uh, I got home, and I was sitting in here with my wife and young son. We were watching a movie, and a SUV pulled up in the front yard. And we were way out here by the National Forest, isolated rural area. And I walked down there, and I thought they were coming to kill me. And I didn't want my son, you know, to, to see me uh, killed. And I walked down there to this SUV, and sitting in the SUV was Harold Leonard. The guy that had first offered me the job to bomb the Murrah building back in October of 1994. And he was sitting there with the motor running with his hands on the wheel and the window down. And I said, what's going on? And he said, look, he said, if you go to court and you talk about anything that we, you know, that we've done or talked about, he said, we've got orders to kill you. And we've got orders to kill your wife and son. And he pointed up to the living room here in the house. And then he put his head down on the steering wheel. And he took a deep sigh, you know, because he was my friend. He was my associate. We'd done ops together. And he took a deep breath, and he said, you know, it's nothing personal. And then he drove away, and he was giving me a warning. So I'm almost to the end of this, and then we can, we can get to questions or dig down deeper. There's a whole bunch to this story. That's why the book took 700 pages. But anyway, Harold Leonard left. I came back in here. I was pretty shook up. Um so the next day I called my attorney, which was a Denver Broncos football team attorney, Harvey Steinberg in Denver, Colorado, and I asked him to uh, change my plea to guilty. 
and we went up uh, to the Tenth Circuit Court, and we met the United States Assistant Attorney, uh, Greg Goldberg, and uh, my attorney said, look, he just wants to change his plea. And he said, pick a charge, any charge, I don't care which one. He says, I'm getting a lot of heat on this. I don't know what's going on with this case. I don't really want to know. Um, just pick a charge and you're out of here. So I pointed to, on the indictment to something. It was upside down. I couldn't even see it. I just pointed to a charge. It was dealing firearms without a license, which is a really ridiculous charge. But I pled guilty to that. And then um, I did three-year supervised release and got out. So they made me a felon, okay, and they threatened my family with death and murder if I was to ever talk about what I'm talking to you about now. And when I was back in solitary confinement, uh, they put me in solitary confinement. Uh, by so you Tennessee. actually did time inside? Oh, yeah, uh, 24 months. Uh, when when they first planted me with evidence, uh, and I went in front of Judge Nottingham, he denied my bond, even though I had a perfect record with no traffic tickets. And I had no drugs or no violence on my charges. I had once been the biggest machine gun and silencer dealer here in the state of Colorado. I had Class 1, Class 2, and Class 3 NFA, that's National Firearms Act, licenses. Um, so we can talk more about the specifics of all this, okay? But he ordered me held without bond. He even said in the, in the bond transcript, there will be no bond under any circumstances because the CIA had snuck in there and showed him those tapes where I talked about Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton and the, the stuff in Arkansas and the drugs and the cocaine and the pedophile rings and the Oklahoma City murder bombing and all this corruption. And so um, that's a violation, by the way, of the Constitution. The Eighth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution says excessive bail shall not be set. That's an exact quote from it. So the judge violated it, and he said there will be no bond under any conditions. And so this whole thing is a cover-up in the Tenth Circuit. It's highly documented in this book with names, dates, times, uh, all kinds of stuff to back it all up. But um, we're getting to the end of this story now. Um, after all this, I pled guilty to something uh, that I didn't do uh, to, to get the CIA off my back and protect my family, and I waited 22 years um, before I got this book out and, and, and got the story out. And in the meantime, in 2007, Judge Edward Nottingham himself, he was the guy that was nominated Okay, by uh, George Bush Sr., Director of Central Intelligence. Um, Judge Nottingham himself had to resign in a sex scandal with prostitutes. He uh, was with uh, Denver Players' owner. It's a club up here in Denver, Colorado. Uh, Brenda Stewart was her name. And she uh, uh, told the feds all about Nottingham, and they got his records and all, and he was soliciting prostitutes and paying for them with credit cards and so forth. So he had to resign, and they swept that all under the rug. Now, the U.S. attorney on my case was Tom Strickland, and he was in a law firm in Denver called uh, uh, Hyatt, Faber, Brownstein, and Strickland. And the principal of the law firm, you know, he left that law firm to become the U.S. attorney who prosecuted me, and he sat right on the front row of my bond hearings. He was put in his position by Bill Clinton. When President Bill Clinton got power, the very first thing he did was fire every U.S. attorney in the whole country. And then he put his own guys in there. He was stacking the DOJ's deck, so to speak. So Tom Strickland was there. 
and uh, they did a classic CIA smear job on me. They had reporters from the Denver Post and Rocky Mountain News, and they told them all kinds of lies. I have all the articles and stuff in the paper, um, you know, to demonize me and make me look bad to cover up all of this corruption, okay, that we were trying to expose. And so um, Norman Brownstein, who was the principal in Strickland's law firm, um, he also worked for the CIA's Council of Six Attorneys back in the late 1970s when George Bush was DCI. Okay. Now, we talked on these tapes about George Bush, and we talked about all kinds of things related to CIA operations and drugs and everything. That's why they disappeared him, because it was all true. And so this whole thing in the Department of Justice up there was controlled by the CIA, all right? They control it covertly, and they steer cases like Timothy McVeigh's, who was the patsy for the Murrah building. And we can get into the reasons why the Murrah building was bombed, and a lot of Americans don't know the real story about all this. But but this anyway, Mel, this is just a summary of the last uh, couple of decades of time, uh, you know, done in, what, 15 minutes or so. So um, this is the whole book. And then we have a lot of specific stories like the Waco thing, what really happened to Barry Sadler in Guatemala City, what happened in Project Slammer, um, the, the operations in, in uh, Mena, Arkansas with the Clintons, how they laundered the money, how they covered it up, the story about Timothy McVeigh, uh, the corruption in the DOJ, and, and stuff like that. That's all in, in the book here. So any questions, uh, fire away. I know it's a lot to cover, but um, we can drill down into anything specific you want to know about. I have to tell you that this this cannot be the only interview we will conduct because it, I know it's going to take a long time to dissect, but I want to be able to grab as much as we can. I hardly have the opportunity to talk to somebody of your caliber about all these events that have happened under our noses and most people don't even suspect. But let's just dissect a few things first. You mentioned Promise, the software Promise. Isn't this the forerunner to PRISM? the NSA's prism? I think it is, uh, although I don't, I'm not familiar with how Promise was morphed, but the Promise software was specifically designed and created for the Department of Justice so that they could take all the hundreds and, thou and thousands of different cases in all the different circuits, the Third Circuit, the Fourth Circuit, the Tenth Circuit, so forth, and they could sort through them with a computer and then pick out the ones like mine who was a, it was a CIA sensitive case. Uh, Joe Naccio, the Q West executive, his, his was an NSA, National Security Agency sensitive case. These are cases that they wanted to keep quiet, cases that they did not want to go to trial in any way. They didn't want any evidence whatsoever presented. And so, uh, if they couldn't control these cases with the Promise software, then the next step would be to seal them under the State Secrets Act so that no uh, jury uh, or anyone else could see it. Now, the judges, like Judge Edward Nottingham, my attorney, Harvey Steinberg, went in there with him when they played these tapes that the CIA disappeared out of my discovery. They just vanished them, um, and he got to see them, and it was him and the U.S. attorney and the judge and then two CIA agents that were in there that had control of the tapes. All the U.S. marshals, 
all the, the court transcribers were kicked out. They wouldn't even make transcripts of these things, okay? And so they violated a number of uh, judicial and procedural legal rules and as well as the Constitution. But the Promise software was designed to keep quiet these sensitive kinds of things so the American people would never get wind and it'd never get out to the press about all this high-level corruption. It's a way for them to sweep it all under the rug. I'm thinking of a few people. After you said that your former colleague came to pay you, quote-unquote, a visit to warn you and yeah. telling you that it was nothing personal. After 20 years, if you are allowed to, to speak out about all of this, I correct me if I'm wrong, should I be under the assumption that there's one or more dead man switches in case something happens to you? Yes. Can you yeah, elaborate? At one, well, yeah, to, to a certain point. Um, I waited for Harold Leonard to die, okay? That would give the CIN out, okay? Um, I put uh, his obituary in the book. I have certain documentation about some of this. Uh, I don't have all the documentation I'd like because a lot of it's classified. But uh, when we first came out with this book, I wrote it in secret. It took me four years to write it. I knew that if I told anyone what I was doing and it got wind to the right people, that they'd probably kill me or stop me. And so I spent four years. I kept everything very quiet. Um, I contacted uh, my friend Ole Damagard over in Europe who's been doing research for 30, 35 years now. Yep. And so I told him what I had. I sent him a disc. I said, we ha if we're going to get this out in public, we have to do it and, and do five or six interviews a day and get this out as fast as we can to as many people as we can because that's my best protection. And so um, I said, I have a number of dead man switches. I have recordings where I snuck into the U.S. Well, I didn't sneak in, but I went into the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Tenth Circuit in Denver. I wrote him a letter, and I accused him of covering up my case for the CIA, and I accused President Bill Clinton of being a drug dealer as well as a pedophile and, and a lot of other things. And I sent the letter in there to him, so they called a special meeting, and present in the meeting were uh, two CIA agents, uh, uh, Blake Butler, the nation's top cop, and another ATF agent named Lee Lovins, and my attorney, Harvey Steinberg. And I snuck surveillance equipment inside the U.S. Attorney's Office. Now, they have a, a real tight security mail. They have x-ray machines and all kinds of stuff. And I recorded them in there. And in, in the recordings, they asked me if I worked for the CIA and all this stuff. These types have never been made public. Okay, they've never been out on any interviews. I have a lot of other counter-surveillance tapes because we did counter-surveillance on the DEA and the ATF with the Russian night vision equipment and so forth. And I, I have all these pictures and tapes and stuff, and I have them on dead man switches to come out if something happens to me. So we got Ole Damagard to help us set up interviews. We went around the world, and we got this story out. I've had uh, a whole lot of things happen to me. I got hit in not one but two separate car wrecks. Uh, both all the cars totaled. I was almost killed uh, three weeks after I got this out. Um, so I'm still recovering, as a matter of fact, from all that stuff. But uh, we've had a whole lot of things happen. I mean, I could talk another two hours on just the things that have happened in the last year since we broke this story. 
But we need to go through the story, and we need to get to the reasons why they bombed the murder building. A lot of people don't know all this stuff. It's amazing stuff. But, um, yeah, we have dead man switches. We have a lot of things. I mean, I've had death threats and all kinds of things. So uh, when you do things like this, you have to realize what you're dealing with and that there is a large shadow government, and they have a lot of tentacles and a lot of uh, ways to silence people. Uh, you know, and shut them up like Michael Hastings and, and uh, uh, Philip Marshall, Seth Rich, uh, so many of them. Vince Foster. Vince Foster. Section in the book here about the Clinton death list and the number of people that have been, um, you know, had heart attacks. Ron Brown. Yeah, Ron Brown. That's a good one. Don Chumley. Uh, he was a doctor down at the Murabelli. We can go. We can get into all this stuff later. There's so much to cover here. Uh, let's actually, let's give the backstory of the why the Alfred Murray building why why that building specifically okay um I have to go back through a little history okay and so so the the people uh listening can get up to speed a little bit okay uh back in the nineteen eighties we're gonna get to the reasons why they bombed the Murray building okay but we have to go through the history so people understand. Back in the 80s, Saddam Hussein in Iraq had come to power in a bath party. Now, he was a paid CIA asset, just like Manuel Noriega was down in Panama. Okay, I've been down to Panama and all through there. But um, a lot of people don't know that Saddam Hussein actually worked for the CIA for a while. And uh, they got in a real bloody war with Iran, about an eight-year war. And Iran enjoyed an, uh, about a 10-to-1 infantry advantage over Iraq. During that time, uh, Donald Rumsfeld, our Secretary of State, went over there. We were giving Saddam satellite intelligence. And we also covertly armed uh, both Iran and Iraq. And that was the basis mail of the Iran-Contra hearings in the Reagan administration. And... I can talk a lot about that in depth because I was in the middle of all that stuff. But um, anyway, back to why they bombed the Murrah building. Saddam Hussein got two things from us, the 123 Hawkeye cluster bombs. These are the most efficient aerial uh, bombs to kill large number of troops. And they thought that if Saddam, which was our ally at the time, got overrun by Iran, um you know, that they could use these things. So we couldn't give them to them directly. This whole story's in the book with dates, names, times, everything. Uh, I'm just summarizing it here. But CIA took copies of our 123 cluster bomb. They set up a front company down in Argentina. They got zirconium out of the agriculture department. That's, it was on our export-import uh, you know, watch list. Uh, they forged agricultural documents and got the zirconium out, which is a key ingredient in the uh, functioning of the Hawkeye cluster bomb. And they set this guy up down in um, Argentina. They produced him. They sent him through uh, Africa, through Jordan, and into uh, Iran, Iraq. And they gave him covertly to Saddam. Now, another thing they did, in case they were overrun, the Iranians, or the Iraqis, excuse me, were overrun by the Iranians who had so much more manpower, we gave Saddam the aim strain of anthrax. It was made at Fort Detrick, Maryland. It had an altered protein coat 
and a, a smaller spore size, which made it more readily absorbable, uh, you know, in spraying operations. More lethal. We- yeah, more lethal. Uh, hence the weaponized version. The same strain of anthrax was given to him. Now, after the war with Iran, when it ended, uh, a period of time went by, and then Saddam invaded Kuwait. And he sent several tank divisions. They went through Kuwait, Mel, in about six hours. Yeah, but before you say that, wasn't wasn't he set up, because I believe that before he invaded, he met with the U.S. ambassador, April Gillespie, and said, hey, Kuwait is slant drilling. And Glaspie said, our policy is not to get involved. So he thought, well, this is a green light to invade. And then wasn't this a setup? Um, some people argue that that was a setup. But when this woman went, Gillespie went to meet Saddam, it was her first meeting of a, of a major foreign diplomat uh, or a major leader. And she was kind of inexperienced. Some people on one side say that it was a setup. Other people say she was just ignorant and didn't really know quite what she was doing and gave Saddam the wrong impression. He was worried that the U.S. might retaliate, but the impression he got was, no, you know, um, they probably won't. We just want you right. to settle this dispute with Kuwait peacefully. Now, Kuwait and Iraq at this time, you know, they had been having uh, disputes over the years. And there was accusations made by Saddam's government that Kuwaitis had slant drilled under the border into Iraq and had stole billions of dollars worth of Iraqi uh, oil. Right. Now, this was probably a propaganda ploy by Saddam to justify that. But you got to remember what's going on at the time, Mel. Um, that Saddam had just fought an eight-year war with Iran. It was very bloody and very costly. And he had spent estimates of 30 to you know 60 billion dollars of money fighting this war buying the arms doing all the stuff and he kind of thought that the arab coalition would um help him you know with some of the finances from this war but later he went and asked uh, the arabs uh arab countries for help and none of them wanted to help him pay for the war reparations so his idea was to go to kuwait he saw it like a fat jewel sitting there on his border, and he was going to annex all their oil and everything, which would have given him control basically of one-fifth of the world's oil supply. Now, when all this went on, they were waded through Kuwait in six hours, and they poised several tank divisions, about 100,000 men, on the uh, Saudi border. And this alarmed the Saudis greatly. They were worried that if he invaded, it would upset OPEC and worldwide economic repercussions and so forth. So the Saudis put pressure on our government. And Bush cooked up, President Bush cooked up the Desert Storm thing. All right, we're getting to Oklahoma City. And that was went off in January of 1991. In August, uh, they, they began, uh, 1990, they began building up all the troops and sending everybody over there and they staged out of the Saudis. Okay. Um, they staged a lot of that equipment in Saudi Arabia. And so in January 91, when the Gulf war started, um, here's where the problems really started occurring. Um, we had covertly armed Saddam Hussein with the aim strain of anthrax. Okay. High level biological weapon. And we couldn't tell the American people, okay, that we'd done that. 
And so George Bush was faced with a big problem. They had to go get Saddam out of Kuwait quickly. But our normal uh, schedule of anthrax shots for our troops was six months. It takes one shot every month for six months to build immunity for this highly virulent biological weapon. So they had to cook up an anthrax vaccine that would that could work in about a month. Meanwhile, they couldn't tell the American people that we'd given him all that stuff, and we were worried that our former ally, who we were now demonizing, might use this biological, this terrible biological weapon on our own troops. Because people would be asking, where did he get the anthrax? Exactly, exactly. So they cooked up, they waived FDA testing, Food and Drug Administration testing. They cooked up an adjunct for this anthrax vaccine. Now, an adjunct is an autoimmune booster. In this case, they used squalene. And squalene is a long molecular fatty acid group. It's from charcoal, basically. And what it does is it boosts immunity so the uh, anthrax attenuated virus can seed adhesion in, in the cells. Yeah, just and like mercury and adjuvant. It's exactly like the thermosol, the mercury, and aluminum and all that, the right. adjuncts used in flu vaccines. So they use this, our troops as guinea pigs, basically, and they gave them this untested stuff, which would later turn into autoimmune function disorder uh, called the Gulf War Syndrome. Oh, wow. All right, now listen, this is really why the American people need to hear this. Okay, the second thing we did in January 91 was we used depleted uranium munitions. Now, Mel, this was the first time that the U.S. military had ever used this stuff in a real uh, war. We had tested it at the Dugway Proving Grounds and Nellis and, and other places here, and so they used it in two primary configurations, the weaponized configurations. One was the M1A1 Abrams tank. Uh, they called it the silver bullet. It was a sabot round. It was a fin-stabilized flechette dart. It was about a nine-inch long um, tube of uranium-238, which was slightly radioactive. Now, the other configuration was in the A-10 Warthog pilots. I know some of them that were over there. And they used the 30-millimeter chain guns with depleted uranium rounds. They were called tank busters. These were very efficient weapons. And the Pentagon didn't know what was going to happen. Now, Timothy McVeigh, the Oklahoma City bomber, he, so-called bomber, um, he was in an M1A1 Abrams tank as a commander, and uh, Terry Nichols was his uh, platoon commander. And Timothy McVeigh won a Bronze Star for confirmed kills during this conflict. Okay. Now, when you fire these weapons, they have a real high kinetic energy. They kill by kinetic energy, not explosives. They travel at approximately 5,200 feet per second. And so an M1A1 tank could fire these things, and they could hit, say, a Soviet T-72 tank. That's a the tank that... Saddam was predominantly using in the desert there, and their turrets weigh approximately 11 tons. You could hit those 11-ton turrets and blow them up like tumbleweeds, you know. And um, they were very efficient. But they they created new chemical compounds in the air mill. They created uranium oxide and uranium dioxide. Now, we're getting to the Murrah building. Okay. 
these elements had micron particulate sizes of approximately four microns. Now, the mop gear that was issued to our coalition troops, the British, you know, the U.S., the French had their own, you know, there was about 28 nations in the coalition uh, to throw Saddam out of Kuwait, but our, our uh, mop gear and NBC, nuclear biological chemical filters, went down to 10 microns. So our troops were breathing all of this depleted uranium, radioactive stuff, and it concentrates in two places in the human body, basically the thyroid glands and the reproductive glands. And so what was happening, our guys were breathing this stuff and didn't know that it was going in our body. Neither did the Pentagon, because this was the first time this stuff had been used in the war. So our guys started coming back home, and they make love to their wives, and in their semen, in, in their reproductive organs, this radiation, this radioactive poison was being transmitted into the ovaries of their wives. And then from the wives to the children, and from the children out of the grandchildren, and so forth. And so the Pentagon had a brand new problem now. It was similar to the Agent Orange. Agent Orange. From Vietnam, where the dioxin was sprayed, that was Operation Ranch Hand in uh, 69 to 71, I believe. I have a section in the book about it, uh, as, as well as some of the stories from some of the veterans in the Navy and the Air Force and the Army that were there. Um, we have a section about that. And DuPont Chemical, of course, settled with the Agent Orange thing. But what happened was with the auction, there was 20 or 30 years went by before all the effects showed up. This depleted uranium that was used in the Desert Storm conflict in January 91 was the same thing. So our guys were bringing it back. The Air Force diagnosed some of the sick babies, and some of the wives were getting sick. Uh, we have the lot numbers of the vaccines from Dover Air Force Base. We have a lot of technical data in this uh, book. Uh, most Americans have never seen. Uh, so anyway, uh, people were getting sick. They called it the Gulf War Syndrome. It was from bad vaccines that were untested with the squalene adjunct and this, this uranium weapon that had never been used. And the Pentagon had a big problem now. They didn't know how many generations down that this radioactive poison would be transmitted from wife to son, to daughter, to grandson, to great-grandkid, they had a potential monster of medical culpability. Uh, maybe hundreds of billions, maybe even trillions of long-term health care costs. So, in 1994, that's the same year I was offered the job to bomb the Murrah building, uh, there was a senator named Christopher Shays, a uh, Republican from Connecticut, he was on an armed services committee, and they'd been tasked with getting medical culpability payments for our sick Gulf War Syndrome veterans. Okay, And he ordered the FBI to gather the medical records of approximately 480,000 troops, men and women, that were in theater from all branches of service, Army, uh, Navy, you know, Marines, Air Force, and gather their medical records so they could document everything and then come up with money to pay our sick veterans, just like the Agent Orange Settlement. Well, the records for all of that, they gave the FBI about a year to gather all the records. You know, some of the guys were still in the service, some were overseas, some were out of civilians and going to civilian medical treatment and so forth. So it was a big task, and the FBI gathered records. Guess where they stored them? 
Murrah Building. In the Murrah Building. So when the Murrah Building blew up, okay, on April 19th of 95, okay, those records disappeared. Now, later on, okay, because the Gulf War hearings went on in our Congress for many years. On September 19th of 1996, they were having congressional hearings on that day on Gulf War Syndrome. And DOD spokesmen were in there, and they admitted at the hearings, and we have copies of this, Mel, in the appendix of the book. They admitted at the hearings that over 400,000 Gulf War Syndrome medical records had, quote, disappeared. Okay. So without those medical records, the veterans couldn't prove uh, stuff. The DOD was off the hook. The Pentagon was off the hook for billions, hundreds of billions. Nobody knew how much money. In long-term intergenerational radiological poisoning, you know, deformed children, cancers, leukemia, so forth. Okay, that was one reason the Murrah building was bombed. All right. Now, the next reason, it's a really good reason as well, uh, it's going to take a little bit of history, too, to go into. So if you're ready, I can start on the second reason why it was bombed. Before you start with the second one. Before we start, before we continue with with the second reason, before we began this interview, I mentioned to you: Is there a similarity between Building Seven, Nine Eleven, and the Murrah Building? Because they wanted to get rid of information. When you look at the tenant list of Building Seven, you start looking at the SEC. It was during the time of Enron and a bunch of other stuff. Is there a similarity between what happened in these two buildings? Absolutely. There, it's about records destruction was was part of it. That's uh, the common denominator. Okay. Yes, and also Mel, you you recall that Donald Rumsfeld, who was the Secretary of Defense at the time, nine eleven there, um, he had gone in public and made a speech that there was a missing two point three trillion. The day uh, before. The day before nine eleven. Now, the section of the Pentagon that got hit. They had a team of approximately 50 accountants and other uh, GAO, general accounting office type people, who were looking into this missing money. And all of them were concentrated, guess where, Mel? In the only section of the Pentagon that got hit and was destroyed. And so many of those records were also destroyed. Okay. So this is, uh, it's an amazing story. I'm, uh, okay. You all right? You ready for the second reason about, uh, the Murrah building? Yes. Okay. I'll try to, I'm doing a lot of this off the top of my head here, but it's all, like I said, it's all detailed. With yeah, and things. by the way, we'll take a break in about 10 minutes. Good. Cause I have to go to the bathroom pretty quick. So sure. I can wait 10 minutes. Um, yeah, this is a good one, Mel. Uh, a lot of Americans don't know this. Okay. But in the operations I was in, in 82 through 85, my front was being a petroleum geophysicist for Amoco. Um, across the border is Arkansas. And down to the south, southeast of Tulsa is the MENA airport. It's along the border between Colorado, I mean, uh, Oklahoma and, and uh, uh, Arkansas. And there's Talamina Drive and the Ochita National Forest out there. There was a front company called Rich Mountain Aviation. There was a contract pilot, Barry Seal. 
uh, he had been in Vietnam with some of the guys I worked with, uh, namely Duke Flagler and uh, the aforementioned Barry Shadler. Uh, they were all special forces. They'd been in the 20th Special Forces Group. Uh, I think they graduated. Their class was 63 where they graduated. Um, but they went over there, and he was a pilot. He came back, and he set up a front company called Rich Mountain Aviation there in Mena. And uh, he had a C-123C, called it the Fat Lady. Uh, and they were flying the arms down into Central America to help the, Congress, uh, the, the Contras. Now, remember in Nicaragua at the time, um, February 84, Congress passed the Bolin Amendment saying that we, we could help them and assist them, but not put troops on the ground. So yeah. Ronald Reagan went around them, and they created three multiply nested CIA operations in Arkansas there to help uh, supply the Contras. I was offered, um, I've studied martial arts for 20 years. I went to Japan and studied and so forth. So um, they offered me the job to do the hand-to-hand combat training for the Contra troops, and I was too busy up here in the States doing all this other stuff. So I turned that down, but um, we were training them and helping them and arming them covertly. And uh, the Centaur Rose Op that I was in was the one where we moved arms. Uh, they took them to Mina. He, they flew them down there, and then they brought cocaine, mostly cocaine, some pot, uh, marijuana back uh, in these ops to pay for the black ops because Congress didn't know about them, okay, and they had to get funding uh, from a black ops source. And so all of this is detailed in the book. Well, uh, this operation went on for a while. Then they had another one called uh, Jade Bridge, CIA Operation Jade Bridge, and, and they used the Ochita National Forest and little cut out little airstrips and stuff. And they were training contra pilots up here in the states uh, to be pilots. And uh, then they'd send them back there, down there to work. And then there was another one called Screw Worm, which is a weapons op to produce machine guns and so forth. And they uh, moved that one down to Mexico City and set up machine shops and stuff down there. But the one I was in was Centaur Rose. And uh, they had, uh, we used uh, the, Na- the National Guard Armory there in Little Rock. Uh, some associates there were uh, stealing the arms out of there. Then we'd cool them off at safe houses in in uh, Arkansas, and then move them over to Oklahoma. Uh, we had a series of safe houses there. Then we'd bring them back, uh, you know, over to Mena. Then they'd fly them down there. Uh, so there was this weapons op going on, and the drugs were coming back in. It was approximately at a tide about a hundred million a month, and they had to wash the money. Well, Bill Clinton was the governor there, and Hillary Clinton was working as a Rose Law firm. And that was their front. They were both working for the CIA. Bill's front was being the governor of Arkansas, and Hillary's front was being uh, running the Rose Law Firm with uh, Hubble uh, and her other associates there. And so um, they had to wash the money, and Clinton used his powers governor to help cover up all the grand jury investigations and so forth. But this operation ran for several years, and they got kind of sloppy, and... Um, it's all detailed in the book. I mean, I could talk about these operations for a lot, but we're just going to kind of glaze over and get to the Murrah building. To make a long story short, they were taking guns and arms down there. They were bringing drugs back. They were selling the drugs. They had to launder the money. And the money went through 
some of it through the Whitewater scandal, through real estate, through Jim and Susan McDougall at the bank there in Little Rock. They went from there to the Worthington Bank in Atlanta and from the Worthington Bank out to the BCCI Bank yeah. in the Cane. That's the Bank of Credit and Commerce International. I'm sure you've heard about that one. Sure. Yeah, and then uh, later John Kerry was on a, a committee, and he helped. He was in charge of that investigation, and they they whitewashed it all. Uh, they helped cover it all up, and, and the uh, records were all vanished into the SEC, the Security and Exchange Commission investigation. So that's how one reason all that was hidden from the American people. But to make a long story short, this uh, operation that was going on down there for the CIA uh, had drawn the ire of many law enforcement agencies, IRS for the money laundering, DEA, uh, the ABI, the Arkansas Bureau of Investigation, uh, and they were in, uh, conducting a number of parallel investigations about all this. Meanwhile, the CIA was trying to cover it up. Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton were using their power and their positions to help cover it up. So all these records, Mel, were stored in the FBI Little Rock field office. So when they were shutting the op down, um, later in 1986, uh, Barry Seal was also planted with evidence, like me, to, sh- to shut him up. Um, on February 19th of 1986, he was coming back to his halfway house there in Baton Rouge, his federal halfway house, and four Colombian hitmen, you know, they had no ski masks, no gloves. They just walked up to him with 9mm MAC-10 machine guns and machine gunned him up in his, in his car in the parking lot. And um, on that same day, uh, down in Colombia, a lot of Americans don't know this, but there was between 25 and 30 uh, Colombian drug cartel members all murdered the same way, machine gunned up, shotgunned up in bloody fashion. One of them was Pablo Carrera, the number two Medellin cartel guy, and uh, Jorge Ochoa was another one, the Ochoa brothers. One of my girlfriends, Mel, uh, once had dinner down in Miami with Pablo Escobar, who was the uh, you know the biggest cocaine dealer in the world at the time. And that story, I can. There's so much to this. I'm just going to skip all of it and get back to Barry Seal. He he, uh, on the day he was shot. February 1986, they searched his car and in his trunk, he had a coat, and a coat was a, a cell phone number written in the pocket. turned out to be George Bush Sr.'s uh, personal cell phone. And then later on, he had a 1982 Beechcraft King Air 200. Uh, that was one of the planes that was at the MENA airport in, under Rich Mountain Aviation, the CIA front company that was moving all the drugs and arms. That was found later on. Uh, at the Crawford Ranch, down with George Bush Jr., it was at his on his property, and they didn't even change the tail numbers. The serial number of that plane we got was BB one zero one four, and so that's another thing that was all covered up. But here, a guy you know is shot to death at a halfway house. He's a CIA drug pilot and arms pilot. Then his plane shows up at the Bushes. Uh, son at his son's ranch, and then the senior George Bush Senior, his his numbers found on his in the guy's personal coat, and so this whole thing was CIA. The Bushes were CIA. The Clintons were CIA. They appeared in their election to the American people in 1990. George Bush was against Bill Clinton and their arguments yeah. and everything. The whole time they were working together. They're all CIA. All right. So anyway, getting back to the Murrah building. 
Oh, no, hold it right there because I want to give you a break. You need to use the restroom and we can break both segments. I don't, don't mean to put a cliffhanger out there, but there's so much I want to continue discussing what you are saying now. Also, I wanted to ask you when we come back, a lot of people don't know that we use the military, military weapons against Americans on the yeah. Branch Davidian compound. And a lot of people don't talk about this. I want to continue talking about Mina, the Clintons, the Bushes. Many people think they're opponents, they're best buddies. Right. I want to know what happened to McCain and to Bush yep. Sr., if you know what happened with them. But first of all, most importantly, how can people buy your book? Um. Yeah, we have two ways. Uh, every time we get up websites here in the U.S., they've been hit and hacked horribly, do uh, dozens of times. Uh, they hit our PayPal, Sprints, everything. So um, we have two ways people can get the book. One is going to lightonconspiracies.com forward slash Cody. Okay, that's an e-book, lightonconspiracies.com forward slash Cody. And then we have a media mail method here in the U.S., and that's through my two emails. We send a CD of the book uh, through media mail, and we bypass all of the ways they hit us and hack us on the, the PayPal's and the websites. Great idea. That, yeah. Well, we had to because we've been under such heavy, extreme censorship. All this stuff in this book is the truth. I'm telling the truth. That's why... The, All of this has happened to me and why they've tried to shut us down. But the uh, way that I can get the books here in the U.S. on CD is um, you can go to Cody at lightonconspiracies.com. That's one email. The other email is Cody Golden Elk at yahoo.com. I'm part Cherokee Indian, and that's my Indian name, Cody Golden Elk at yahoo.com. So either one of those methods, you know, if I hit... I relied on Conspiracy's website mail. was taken down for five weeks. It was down. It was hacked horribly. And uh, we finally got it back up. But one way, when we sell these CDs, we can ensure the data integrity because none of it's done on the Internet. We have the master file of the book, and it can't be tampered with. We found them that some of them were tampering with the data streams on some of our downloads. So we've been under extreme censorship. I'm not saying this is incredible because it has happened to me in the past 30, 60 days. I, I'm getting tired. I don't want to bore people as to what we're going through. Even all this latest interview, as I mentioned to you before, I had to remove the titles. I had to censor for the first time in our 10 years. I had to put white noise in some of the keywords on that interview so that we're not shut down. We don't get a strike on YouTube. It's almost like we're living in this Orwellian society now. The freedom of speech is gone. And instead, this is the world we're living in. And this is why it's so important for us to have people like Cody Snodgrass be here on this program. On our two folks, we're going to dig deeper. I want to ask questions that the media will never ask. And I'm sure, Cody, you'll never be invited to the mainstream media. Am I correct? <laughs> no, no, Mel, we won't. Cody Snodgrass is my special guest today. You're listening to Veritas. I'm Al Fabregas, so I hope you come back and listen to part two. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first part of this very important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest and all of our material, proceed to the members section or subscribe at VeritasRadio.com. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for MMS, 
hemp oil, pure organic sulfur, and other great products. Thank you.